we, we come tonight to the, uh, the long-awaited Joshua series. Um, so, but don't actually turn to the book of Joshua because we're not actually going to be doing the book of Joshua tonight, if that makes any sense, because we're going to be doing a general introduction. And uh, I, th I think it'll, um, it's quite surprising how, obviously I know what I'm going to say, don't I? How it fits in with what the Lord has been saying to us while we were praying and worshipping. And, uh, you know, but, but, but tonight kind of a, a general introduction to, to, to the series. And, uh, and what we've got to do is immediately to, 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 you know, to understand where we are in the Bible with the book of Joshua and with the imagery of, of the whole thing. Because, of course, by the time we get to Joshua, the situation is that, that Moses has led Egypt, um, Israel out of Egypt. And having been led out of Egypt, they go through the wilderness. And then, you know, there's 40 years in the wilderness. And, of course, most most of them die in the wilderness and then it was a new generation that eventually went into the promised land and of course the book of Joshua is at the point where Moses has died and it's on the eve of when Joshua leads that new generation of Israelites into the promised land into Canaan and that's that, that's that's the history um, that we're going to be dealing with but Let's get the imagery, the, the typology, because of course everything, I've said this so many times, the New Testament is the script, the Old Testament is the movie. And, uh, you know, sort of it's acted out for us in history. And of course, the picture that we've got is that Egypt is a picture of the world. And there were God's people in Egypt under the control of Pharaoh. And also, under the control of the taskmasters because they were slaves, absolute slaves. And every Egyptian, you know, you know, would have been in work parties or slave parties with a taskmaster over them, and the taskmasters would beat them and set them tasks that were impossible and then beat them for not doing the tasks. And, you know, a life of absolute slavery. And, of course, the picture you've got there is that Egypt is the world, that you have Pharaoh, the god of this world. Pharaoh is a picture of Satan and the god of this world. Uh, and he is the God of this world. The Bible refers to him as such. So Pharaoh is a picture of Satan. And of course the taskmasters are a picture of personal sin. And that's the position that all of us are in. You know, sort of like under the power of Satan through the taskmasters of sin in our lives. In the, the slave market of sin. And of course in, 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 in God raising up Moses and leading his people out. Because of course we've seen quite a lot of this of late haven't we that we were actually his people before we were his people you 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 came to him because you were his sheep who heard his voice and so god brings his people out of the world and out from under the power of satan and so that is a picture of being born again israel uh, being brought out of egypt and crossing the red sea is the picture of coming to know the lord being saved and being baptised into the Christian life. So that's, that's the first picture, the world. And then in the wilderness, the wilderness was a place of death, wasn't it? And the real problem was not so much getting Israel out of Egypt. That took a few days. The problem was getting Egypt out of Israel. Now that took 40 years. So it don't take long to get you out of the world. I mean, that's a, an instant when you believe on Jesus. But, oh boy, then the Lord has to get the world out of us 
and that's a completely different situation. And of course, he, he didn't because the generation, you know, sort of like died. And of course, in the Bible, you get this whole thing about a dying to self, that there's a death to self. And it's through that that the Lord delivers us from the world inside of us. And, uh, and so, in some ways, that you've got kind of, you know, the wilderness wanderings and the fact that the whole generation, including Moses, died in the wilderness. You have that picture of death to self. And you have there God dealing not with the world, but God dealing with the flesh. But then, and this is the point of the history that we're going to be dealing with, after that came the conquest of Canaan. After that came, God saying to his people, I've given you the land, move into the land, take everything that I've provided for you. I give it all to you as a gift, you must take it. But in order to take it, you must push back the Canaanites every step of the way. And the conquest of Canaan represents to us the, the, the moving deeper and deeper into the fullness of of life in Christ that God has given us and yet at the same time pushing back and claiming ground from the enemy from the Canaanites and of course it's a picture of spiritual um, warfare and in many ways the book of Joshua is the Old Testament counterpart to the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians or rather it's the other way around Ephesians is to the New Testament what the book of Joshua is to the Old Testament. And if you just go to Ephesians 6, and this is a parallel that as we go through these talks will become clearer and clearer to you. If, if you just find Ephesians and... Um, and go to chapter 6. And uh, in, in verse 10. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Joshua and Israel's struggle was against flesh and blood. It was against the Canaanites. But our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. And that is the, the, the call for the Christian to spiritual warfare in much the same way that we're going to see how Israel was called to warfare against the Canaanites in the promised land. And so there's the picture. You have here really the Christian life, deliverance from the world, the flesh, and then the devil. And, uh, you know, sort of, so that's what we're going to be seeing at, but particularly within the context of spiritual warfare. But also, uh, the imagery goes even further, because, of course, Moses died in the wilderness. Joshua here takes over from Moses. Now, we know that the law came through Moses, and, of course, the law can never save us. 
The law was simply given to show people that they need salvation. God gave the law to show you that it doesn't matter what you do, you can't come up to scratch. So the law shows you that the law can't help. The law shows you that if you're to be saved, it's got to be through intervention from God outside of the law. And so Moses, the lawgiver, he dies in the wilderness because in our death to self, we die to the law. You die to your own efforts. You die to any pretense, any delusion, any deception that we have in our proud hearts that we can contribute in any way at all, either to our salvation or, or you know, to being set free from sin from start to finish. It's the Lord. And so therefore Moses dies in the wilderness. Moses, com Moses brings you to be saved because he convicts of sin. But thereafter, once saved, in order to live the Christian life, out goes Moses and in comes Joshua, who took over from Moses. Now Joshua, all right, his Hebrew name in Hebrew is Yeshua. Now then, what is the Aramaic for Yeshua, Jesus? Joshua, Jesus. It's the same word, all right, exactly the same name. And of course, the law came through Moses, but grace came through Yeshua, came through Joshua, came through Jesus. So here we see immediately that in regards to the imagery we've got here, Joshua is actually a type of Jesus himself. And so what we've got is that Moses brings you to the point where you're convicted of sin and you become a Christian, okay? But outside of that, the law can't help us in any way at all, because the life that God has called us to. The life of having been saved, the life of being delivered from sin, and the life of Jesus coming through us, that is pure grace. That is a free gift. And of course the point is that sanctification, which of course we define as deliverance from the power of sin, is by grace, it's a free gift, in exactly the same way as justification, deliverance from the penalty of sin, was by grace a free gift. And so the point is, God has taken us out of the world and transferred us, as Paul says, into his kingdom. We are saved. And that was a free gift. Even the desire to want the free gift was given us by God. The free gift of salvation, even our desire to have that free gift, was itself a free gift. Lock, stock and barrel, it's of grace. But sanctification the Christian life, being set free from the power of sin, is also a gift as well, by grace. And we've often defined grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. And so that's the imagery we've got here. And so with Israel going through the wilderness, that 40 years in the wilderness and they all died, that's that's kind of like the main imagery that we've got of, of death to self, of kind of like sanctification. Because, of course, sin is overcoming our lives, not through our power, but by Jesus living through us. So, therefore, that death to self releases the life of Jesus within us. But we mustn't think that, therefore, when we see Israel going into Canaan, that when we come on to spiritual warfare, we mustn't think in any way at all that spiritual warfare kind of, you know, like comes, you know, that once God's totally dealt with you, once you're completely sanctified, then you move on to spiritual warfare. We mustn't think like that, because of course the work that God's doing in our lives to deliver us from the power of sin will go on until the day that we die. And spiritual warfare, that struggle with the principalities and powers that Paul spoke about in Ephesians is one of the main means that the Lord uses to actually 
accomplish the work of sanctification in our lives. So spiritual warfare is part and parcel of the Lord delivering us from the power of sin. Think of Job. You know, that, that contest, all right, you know, when, when, when God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And then what happens is that Satan is allowed to attack Job and major spiritual warfare, and yet as a result of that, the Lord brings Job to a place that he'd never been before. He, he brings Job into a place of maturity and sanctification that he'd never been in. And so there, spiritual warfare was a means of furthering the work of maturing Job that God was doing in his life. You'll remember as well that Peter at one point with Jesus, he said, Jesus, I'll die for you. I'll, you know, sort of like, don't, don't you worry, Lord, I'm with you. The big reassurance, the big eye. And remember, if death to self is, I suppose, symbolised by the cross, then the cross is an eye and you cross it out. That, that is the sign of the cross. So Peter had not been crossed out. And what Jesus said to him, he said, look, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. Now the idea there is a threshing sledge, you know, that you get the kind of, you know, like the harvest and you give it a good thrashing and all the rubbish falls out so only the good stuff is left. That's what Peter needed. The Lord was in there but there was too much of Peter. So the Lord used Satan to give Peter the threshing or the thrashing that, that, that enabled him to come to the point where he was at the end of himself and therefore the Lord could, you know, kind of like move through him in a way that he couldn't before. And so there is always a link between our sanctification, between the ongoing work of God delivering us from the power of sin in our lives. There is always a link between that and the spiritual warfare that we're called to and that is typified for us in the, um, you know, the, uh, the leading of Israel by Joshua into the promised land. So obviously we can see that as we go through the book of Joshua that we're, we're going to learn much of our Christian lives. We're going to learn an awful lot of, of how the Lord works in us. We're going to learn a lot about spiritual warfare and how to spot the wiles of the devil and, and, and how to stand against them and that. But before we actually move into the story of Joshua, before we actually move into the book, what we're going to do tonight is uh, we're going to see Joshua in, in, in his early years. And uh, we're going to see how the Lord worked in him um, to prepare him to eventually succeed Moses as the leader of God's people once Moses actually died. And uh, you'll remember, oh, and this was, was a long, long time ago, when we did the Elijah series. One of the things we noticed about Elijah was that he, he just, he, he came out of nowhere, didn't he? Just, you know, now Elisha, Elijah the Tishbite, that's how Elijah was introduced in the Bible. We had nothing about his background at all. Bang, he just comes onto the scene. And we saw that, you know, we had no details of how God developed him and prepared him for the ministry that he'd been called to. Bang, we just get the beginning of the ministry onwards. But with Joshua, again, a major leader of God's people, we have the opposite. Because with Joshua, we have an awful lot in the Bible about how God prepared him for the ministry that only begins at the beginning of the book of Joshua. So, you know, sort of like in the years leading up to that, we can actually see how God prepared him to, to fulfil the task of leading God's people into the promised land. And uh, already tonight we've heard about, you know, sort of like, you know, success depends on being prepared, all the preparation that goes on beforehand. 
And we can see tonight how God prepared Joshua for the eventual task that was going to befall him. And uh, we're, we're going to look at most of the references in the Bible to him prior to the actual book of Moses. And learn, here we're going to be seeing the preparation of a leader. So if you go to um, Exodus, which is where we start off, Exodus, and if you find chapter 17, Exodus 17, and uh, we'll read from verse 8. And this, this is the early days of the wilderness wanderings. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Now there's an awful lot there, isn't there, about you know spiritual warfare, you know, sort of the staff representative of faith and, and, and just standing in the victory that, that God has already won over Satan. And so Moses, as long as he holds his staff in the air, they prevail. Satan is pushed back. But when he lets the staff down, when his faith wavers, Satan, you know, the Amalekites start to win because everything is by faith. By faith, we're simply trusting and receiving the free gift of God. And so what happens here, we see a picture that everything is by faith. And yet also, Moses, he just he, he couldn't do it on his own. His arms got tighter and tighter. And Aaron and Hur were there. And what they did, they sat him on a rock. Now then, we know that the rock that followed them through the wilderness was Christ. Paul says that in Corinthians. So you've got the picture there that we find our rest in Christ. Because it's not all our effort. Jesus said, come unto me, you who labour and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And that Moses, he gets sat on the rock. He was resting in Christ. He knew that Jesus had already won victory. And yet Aaron and her, they hold his arms up and they support his arms. And there's the picture of fellowship. That's why we're called, not just to follow the Lord individually, but we're called to follow the Lord as part of a larger group of people. And that's why God puts people in churches and why churches make up the church of God. We can't go it alone and there's a picture there of fellowship. Now we'll, we'll be back to, to that story in a later talk but the main thing that we need to see here, because also there was teamwork you know, because it was Joshua down there doing the fighting and just note that Joshua he was leading the army as Moses' assistant he was down there in the thick of the fight I mean here he was a young man and yet he was down there in the thick of the fight. He was a warrior for the Lord. He wasn't someone who got converted and was very glad that now he wasn't going to the lake of fire and so sort of meander along in a kind of a, well, half spiritual but half carnal kind of, well, I mean, I fit the Lord in wherever I can. 
he was sold out to the Lord. He was a warrior. He was a fighter. He wasn't, you know, a Christian with his feet up. He was down there. He was in the action. And that tells us a great deal about him. None of us can expect to grow in the Lord without the effort that we're seeing here in Joshua. You can't sit with your feet up and, and think that by doing that you're exercising all the spiritual muscles that make you a spiritual warrior. It's not possible. To make muscles grow, you've got to use the muscles that you want to grow. And so what we see here is that uh, Joshua, he was a fighter for the Lord. He wasn't just for an easy time. He was in the thick of the battle, giving it all he had. So what we see from Joshua is that unlike so many other people, is that he wasn't merely a hearer of God's word, he was a doer of God's word. And so because he was doing, God prepared him. And of course it's so true, isn't it? The Lord steers a moving ship. So often we want, you know, sort of like the Lord to lead us here, there and everywhere and do this, that and the other. But we're not moving in whatever direction he's already set us in. And so the point is that Joshua, he was giving it 100% for the Lord. And that's important. That was part of the preparation. Or rather, how can I say, it was because he was actively sold out to the Lord that the Lord could prepare him in the way that we're going to see and accomplish the great things through him that he eventually did accomplish. Uh, go now, still in Exodus, over to um, chapter 24. And uh, we'll read from verse 9. Right, chapter 24, verse, verse 9. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, I mean, they, they got a love feast with God himself. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua his assistant and went up to the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. And that what we've got here is that this is after the confirmation of the covenant of the Ten Commandments. Moses has sprinkled the people with the blood, therefore ratifying you know, the covenant um, in regards to the nation. And, um, and then Moses goes up again to be with the Lord. But here we see that Joshua goes up to the mountaintop with him that wherever his master was going, Moses, Joshua was there. And um, just go, go over to, to chapter 32. And um, this is the, now we have the, the golden calf incident, you know, that Joshua and Moses, they, they come down, having been on the mountain for 40 days and 40 days, they come down. And of course Israel, they've, you know, sort of like they've made an idol and they're eating and drinking and they're parching and they're having a what really amounted to an idolatrous orgy. And if we just read uh, verse 15, Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. 
When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. And that what we've got here is that while God's people in general found time to eat and drink and play, I mean, here, here, what they were doing was completely wrong. It was idolatrous. But the point is, while they took time out just for their own fun, Joshua, where was he? He was learning of the Lord from Moses. Can you see the point? Not for him, a Christian life whereby self came first. Can you see what I mean? While other people played, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with playing, the way they played here was despicable, it was idolatrous and immoral. But can you see the point? That what we're seeing here in Joshua is a, a kind of a dedication to what the Lord was doing through him that meant that he was foregoing even things that are quite legitimate. But can you see his single-mindedness? Jesus said, let your eye be single. Be single-minded, determined. You know, sort of like almost, you know, like, you know, horses, they put the blinkers on so they can only see straight in front of them. And we need to be like that in regards to the Lord, and Joshua was as well. Regardless of what anyone else was doing, Joshua was 100% concentrating um, on learning from the Lord and being with Moses and, and learning everything he could from Moses. Can you see that he was really sold out? You know, I mean, not for him the casual, airy-fairy, well, I mean, I'll fit it in when I've got the time. This was, he was 100% sold out. And again, this is why the Lord was able to prepare him in the way that he did. Right, now if we go to... Um, chapter 33, um, you're in 32, go to the next chapter, and uh, find verse 7. Exodus 33, we'll start reading from verse 7. And it says, Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young assistant Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Now, there's an incredible, um, you know, sort of picture here. Moses, he had his tent kind of like outside of the camp. And when he went to this particular tent, the, the Shekinah glory, you know, the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night, which signified the presence of God amongst them, would settle on the tent. And Moses would go in this tent and God himself would go into the tent and talk with Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. That was absolutely incredible. And, uh, you know, and when that happened, like all the Israelites, they stood at, you know, outside of their tent, just, just watching, just kind of like awestruck. 
And of course, there's a picture there of 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 Claire, of Claire, of prayer. What am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> and we we certainly see here that Moses, and it's one of the things that signified his life, that Moses was a man of prayer. He was a man who spoke much with God. But what we're seeing here with Joshua is that Joshua, when Moses went out to this special tent, there was Joshua traipsing along behind him. But even when Moses had finished and the Lord had gone from the tent and Moses went back to the camp, where's Joshua? Joshua is remaining in this tent where Moses had been speaking to the Lord. And what you can see here is you can see so clearly that here's young Moses, uh, young Joshua, with Moses kind of like his mentor, his, his leader, all right. And Joshua is aware of, of, of this closeness that Moses has with God. Joshua is aware of, 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 of the way that Moses lived in faithfulness before the Lord. And what you can see here so clearly is that Joshua is himself yearning for the same relationship with God that Moses had. So he knew that Moses, when he went to that tent, God descended in this absolutely unique way. And, when, and, and then God would leave the tent and Moses would leave the tent, but Joshua, he'd stay behind. Maybe, maybe there were even naive talks that the Lord would come back, that, you know, uh, sort of like this hope that the Lord would come back down and speak with him in the same way, which obviously the Lord didn't plan to do. But can you see in Joshua, he's, he's just yearning to have with God what Moses has got with God. And so here we see Joshua sort of like symbolising prayer, all the time turning to the Lord, but also copying godly leadership. He knew that Moses was close to the Lord. All right. And so Joshua, what he's doing, he copies what Moses does. Moses went to that tent. So what did Joshua do? He went to that tent. Uh, Moses goes up the mountain. What does Joshua do? Goes up the mountain. He's copying Moses because he wants to have the same thing with the Lord that Moses has got. Now, there's a tendency, isn't there, to think... Or, now that's potentially dangerous, isn't it? You know, to sort to imitate a mere man. Surely we imitate the Lord. And yes, that's absolutely right. But listen to what Paul said. Paul wrote to a church and he said, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Yes, of course we follow the Lord's example. But leadership should be following the Lord's example. And if leadership is mature and godly, then sometimes it's easier to learn of someone who's there visually who you know well, and to learn of the Lord through them. I leaders set an example. Moses set an example to Joshua, and Joshua followed it. What a, a challenge here, you know, to leaders, to lead the kind of life where you could safely say, oh, in regards to that, do it like me, and you'll be okay. What a challenge to leadership. But Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. But the main point is that what you see here in Joshua, again, is this determination, this absolute determination to have everything that was on offer for him from the Lord. 
and the way he followed Moses, his commitment to Moses, his loyalty to Moses. All, all these was all part of God preparing him. Without loyalty, you get nowhere. Loyalty to today is, is increasingly hard to come by. Now, when we talk about loyalty, obviously, there's never a time when we have to be loyal to wrongdoing. The Lord comes first, above all things, obviously. But outside of that, a loyalty, you know, sort of like that sticks with someone through thick and thin, through good and bad. That's the loyalty that Jesus has to us. And, and, and here we see Joshua with, with, with that loyalty to Moses. But he's pressing on. He's just, I don't know, milking the situation. He's just doing everything he can to get everything that Moses had and, uh, and more so. And again, we see that that's part and parcel of uh, the Lord preparing him. And uh, it, again, when other people were rising up to eat and drink and play, there's nothing wrong with that of itself. But the point is, quite equally, while they were doing that, Joshua was, was busying away, doing everything he could to grow in the Lord and to make sure that he wasn't missing out on anything that, that the Lord had for him. Right, now, go to Numbers and um, see something slightly different. This is... This is kind of sweet. This, this actually shows the loyalty, all right, that he did have for Moses. But uh, it's an example of when loyalty goes wrong, actually. And uh, he, he, he gets put well straight by Moses here. Um, so he kind of gets a chance to learn correction here and uh, probably feel a bit of a twit into the bargain. Uh, Numbers, chapter 11. And if you find verse 24... Moses went out and told the people what the Lord has said. All right, God has spoken to Moses. Moses went out, told the people what the Lord has said. He brought together 70 of their elders and made them stand round the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him. And he took of the spirit that was on him and put the spirit on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. So here the people they, they prophesy once, but that was it. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad, uh, they did have a brother, your dad, but he wasn't there that day, but whose names were Eldad and Medad, had, had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. So here were two elders, they, 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 they weren't there when the spirit came on the other elders and they prophesied, all right. Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' assistant since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. You see here very clearly why the Bible says that Moses was the meekest or humblest man um, in the whole world. Because what's, what happens here? Um, I mean, everyone knew that God spoke to Moses face to face. And Moses would come out the tent and say, well, the Lord said this. And so they knew, right, that's what the Lord said. But on this occasion, uh, the elders of Israel are standing outside the tent and the Spirit comes on them and they prophesy, all right. 
but two of them are back in the camp, you know, like the general camp, you know, with everyone else. And the spirit comes on them, and they're going around the camp, and they're prophesying as well. And so somebody runs up to Moses and Joshua and so Eldad and Medad are prophesying. And they arrive just as all the other 70 are, you know, thus saith the Lord all over the place as well. And suddenly Joshua is confronted with the circumstance that suddenly all these other people are prophesying in the name of the Lord. Whereas up till then he'd only known of Moses doing that. And what he wants to do, and this is where his loyalty went wrong. His loyalty to Moses was right, but here it goes wrong. And there's a real lesson um, for Joshua to learn here. Moses had learned it, now Joshua has to start learning it. And it was the point that Joshua gets insecure for Moses' position. And he thinks, blimey, everyone's prophesying. Oh, but only Moses is supposed to do that. And what he does is he says, Moses, shut them up. Shut them up. You've got a monopoly on the Lord using you. Now, Moses, because he was older and wiser, that's why it was Joshua learning from Moses and not the other way around. Moses, because he was, um, you know, sort of like older and wiser, says to, um, you know, to Joshua, he says, no, no, no problem. It's the Lord doing it through them. I wish everyone knew the Lord like I did. I wish the Lord used everyone like he's using me. Now can you see the point? Moses, his security didn't rest in how God used him. His security didn't rest on performing. His security was simply in the fact that God had called him, he was doing God's will. His security was in the Lord himself. Therefore, when the Lord starts using other people, in a way that thus far only Moses had been used, Moses was pleased. He didn't feel threatened. He didn't think, oh crumbs, if I'm not careful, I'm going to lose my leadership. That's what Joshua was thinking. He said, oh M Moses, if we don't shut these people up, there might be a rebellion. Well, there were rebellions against Moses and God delivered him out of all of them. No one could touch Moses. You can't touch the anointed of God. No way. You can try, but you can't. And, but here, Joshua has yet to learn that lesson. And so he's, he's fighting here, uh, you know, for Moses, you know, sort of like, protect yourself, Moses, and, and stuff like that. Well, fortunately, Moses was, was able to put him right. And, I mean, this point is vital, and it's vital for anyone in leadership to learn it. And, and, and often it's learned, the, the, you know, the, the hard way, but if so, so be it. And it's this, leaders do not have the monopoly of being used by God. Absolutely no way do leaders have the monopoly of being used by God. And neither do elders or leaders have a monopoly on being spoken through by God. And, and that's vital, that's vital. Leadership that hangs insecurely onto its position is not a good leadership. Because it kind of, you know, it develops the, you know, it cuts out body ministry. I mean, in the New Testament, when you come together, each one has. Not sit there like good little plebs because the leaders are going to do all the talking. Each one has. We all have the Holy Spirit ministry through the body and here uh, Joshua learns that lesson probably felt a bit silly but his loyalty to Moses was admirable but his application of it here showed that there was still folly in his heart the folly of immaturity and so therefore God had to you know show him this through Moses and here what he's got is party spirit here Joshua is doing a I'm for Moses <laughs> 
Well, Moses didn't need Joshua to be for him. God was for Moses, and Moses knew that. So Moses was quite secure. Joshua was insecure on his behalf and tried to get other people not uh, to use the gifts of the Spirit. And Moses said, look, I wish everyone was using the gifts of the Spirit, for heaven's sake. And that's a, a, a valuable lesson that Joshua learned there. Right, so next, uh, over to chapter 13. In fact, chapters 13 and 14, though we're not actually going to, 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 to read them, I'll just, um, I'll just give you the rundown on, um, on what happens. Um, in Numbers 13 and 14, we have the story of the, the 12 spies who were sent into Canaan. So at this point, they're not in Canaan, you know, this is still the beginning of the wilderness wanderings. It didn't take them long to get to the verge of Canaan at all. You know, we saw that when we did the Bible survey. They, 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 you know, they got to Canaan in a few weeks, no problem. It was because they blew it that the Lord sent them back and took them a long way, 40 years worth. And, uh, but here, they were right on the verge of going into Canaan. And the spies are sent out to, um, to, to spy the land out. And um, it's actually here in, um, in chapter 13 and verse 16 um, that we, we learn that, um, that Moses changed his name, um, that Joshua was the name that Moses gave him. His actual name that he was born with was Hoshea. Now, Hoshea is the same as Hosea. We, we saw Hosea, didn't we, in the Bible survey, uh, you know, one of the prophets who's got a book in the Old Testament. But his name was actually Hoshea, and here, Moses changes his name to Joshua. Now, Hoshea uh, means salvation, all right, which is great. Joshua means the Lord saved, and that's what Jesus means. Joshua is Jesus, Yeshua, it's the, the same name, the Lord saves. And often you get kind of like changes of name in the Bible signifying that God has has taken you kind of like where you, you, you are, but now he's going to use you in a specific way. So almost what you might call a kind of a you know, ministerial name, as it were, if that doesn't sound too spiritual. But uh, here he, he gets um, a change um, of name. So what happens is that the, 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 they, you know, the 12 spies and Joshua, one from each tribe, and Joshua was from the tribe of Ephraim. So Joshua was the representative spy from his tribe, Ephraim, uh, along with 11 others who went into, the, into Canaan to spy it out. Right? And, uh, and so they go and they spy it out and they come back. So you're in chapter 13, and find verse 26, and uh, we'll, we'll see the report that the spies brought back. They've gone out, they've done a recce, they've reconnoitred the land, and now they come back. Verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. They reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They've brought back fruit from trees and they're bringing them on stretchers. You know, I mean, it, 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 it's so big, you know, sort of like, well, you know, I mean, not literally, but like, you know, sort of bananas that big. It's just, they, they bring back this example of just what an incredible, this fruit, what an incredible place it actually is. Uh, they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit, enter, massive banana type thing. Um, but the people who live there, right? So just notice this, it's everything the Lord says. It's brilliant. But, right, as soon as you get a bat in the Bible, you know there's trouble. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. 
We even saw descendants of Anak there, I the giant. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Now, I'll just read that last bit again to give you the feeling here. The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, they live in the hill country, and the Canaanites, they're near the sea. Oh. Eh? Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses, and, uh, you know, sort of like, shut up, all right? Possibly wasn't that tactful, but... And he said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Oh, can you see a difference now between the other spies and Joshua? But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people, they're stronger than we are. You know, they're biting their nails. And, and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. Well, hang on, they brought back a good report. Now, unbelief, moan, groan, now they're spreading a bad report. See what happens? You know, unbelief, not faithful to the Lord, and, you know, good things then become bad, and then you, you badmouth everything. Um, they said, the land we explored devours those living in it. Well, they just said, what a fantastic place it was. All the people we saw there of great size, well, I mean, not all of them, but certainly some of them were, we saw the Nephilim there, um, the descendants of Anak. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So, basically, what you've got here, the spies come back and they say, not a chance. No way. Too hard. I mean, the Lord had told them he was going to give it to them. They said, no, no way. Too hard. Okay. Right, now, going to verse 14, let's see what the people say about this. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. Could it be they were that happy? No. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we died in Egypt or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to the land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Right, the spies have gone out, spied the land. They've come back, they said, it's a great place, but we can't take it. Joshua says, yes, we can, no problem. Now they say, oh, it's a terrible place, don't really want it anyway, you know. And now they're bad-mouthing to all the people. Can you see what unbelieving negative talk does? And now the people have got together, and there's a great wail going up in the camp now, and they all want to depose Moses and Aaron, who'd been proved themselves as God leaders, you know, God's leaders, so clearly now they want to depose Moses and Aaron, choose new leaders, and go back to Egypt. How ridiculous. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh, because Caleb was a goodie as well, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. And they said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. Um, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. 
do not be afraid to them. But the whole assembly talked of stoning them. Now then, so what have you got? The response of the spies is we can't do it. Negative, unbelieving, unfaithful, looking at themselves, not looking to the Lord at all. All right? And then they start stirring up trouble against the leaders. All right? And now the people, they're getting ready. They want to depose Moses and Aaron. Bit of a mob is forming, you know, is forming now. And, um, and Moses and Aaron, they just fall on their face and pray because they weren't going to defend themselves. But bang, Joshua, he's straight there. And Joshua, he stands against this crowd. You know, because Joshua is learning that you don't fear man, you fear God. I mean, he might have been shaking in his shoes, but it doesn't matter fearing. Fear is only wrong when you give in to it. He, he might have been in real fear and trembling, but he stood against this mob, and he talks faith, not unbelief. He talks faith. He gets, tries to get everyone to put their eyes on the Lord. They say, now hang on a sec, they're the grasshoppers, not we got the Lord with us. No problem, their protection is gone. <coughs> but the Lord is with us, and he tries to encourage them. He says, don't rebel against the Lord, because he, he knew that unbelief is rebellion. The Bible talks about the evil heart of unbelief. Unbelief against the promises of God is rebellion. And so now, standing with Caleb, he's saying to the people, look, we can do it. If the Lord is with us, that's all that matters. <clears throat> if you just go down to verse 30, and um, this is God's response to the situation. This is God speaking. He says, Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. And then go to verse 38. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, survived. God struck the other ten spies dead in judgment because of the evil that they'd done, the bad report they brought back about the land, and the way that they tried to stir up the people um, against Moses and Aaron. And so again, can you see here in Joshua that he'll stand alone when he needs to with God. He, he didn't fear men. He, he didn't fear what they said. And that his eyes were on the Lord. He was full of faith. When others were full of unbelief, he was full of faith. When others were just obsessed with themselves, he was talking about the Lord. He was getting people's eyes off of themselves onto the Lord. He wasn't denying the problems. He didn't pretend that there weren't giants there. He didn't pretend that there weren't dangers in the land of Canaan, but what he said was this, God is bigger than they are, and God is with us, and we can do it. Now that's faith. That's faithfulness. That is a spiritual warrior. Someone who says that God, as it were, is bigger than Goliath, therefore what is Goliath to me? If God is with me, no problem. If God be for us, who can be against us? That's what Paul says in Romans 8. And so we hear that Joshua, faith rather than the unbelief, the rest of the people fretting, worrying, negative, not looking at the Lord, just looking at the situation. Whereas Joshua, faith, positive, because he knew God was with them. 
not denying the difficulties, but saying, but God can overcome the difficulties. And the people, their tendency, they badmouth the land. Fe feeling overcome by the difficulties, they started painting pictures that the land wasn't a good place. But Joshua, absolute truth. He wouldn't sway from the truth one bit. He says, no, that's not true. The land is wonderful. It's everything that God says. And so can you see, you know, the way that, that God is preparing Joshua, how he's blossoming, how he's becoming everything that God wanted him to be in order, um, you know, for him to be the one who was going to lead the people in. So what we see here is that Joshua and Caleb, of the generation that came out of um, Egypt, they, 40 years later, were going to be the only two who went in. Moses was eventually barred from going into the land as well, but for different reasons, all right. But Moses died in the wilderness as well, but not because of unbelief, but because he misrepresented God's holiness and mercy in a way that, you know, he had to be made an example of. You know, remember at the end of the day, the law kills you in the wilderness, so, so, so Moses had to die. Moses, you know, what, you know, Moses ended up saying, you rebels and sinners, looking down his nose. That's what the Lord does. You know, Jesus, he, he builds us up with grace. He'll correct us, but he's grace. He's not, you know, you rebels and sinners. We're his children. He loves us. He, he builds us up with grace. So Moses was barred for other reasons, but it's here we see that Joshua and Caleb were going to be the only two of that whole generation who came out of Egypt, the only ones to end up um, going into the promised land. And one of the things that we're seeing here in, in, in you know, sort of um, Joshua be, being prepared as a leader of God's people, and, and this is certainly true of leadership, it ought to be true of non-leadership as well, it just ought to be true of Christians full stop, but true leaders are unstoppable, except when they're wrong. I, I mean, true leaders must be open to correction, certainly. I mean, we're not talking about a bullheadedness that never listens, you know, makes it, but never listens to anything anyone says. I mean, Moses was correctable, Joshua was correctable, but can you see what I mean? That they're unstoppable except when they're doing wrong. And that's vitally important, because if you're not unstoppable, Satan will stop you. That's, that's simple to grasp. If you're not unstoppable, Satan will stop you. So if you don't want Satan to stop you dead in your tracks, and a few weeks ago we were looking at the parable of the sower, and that, I mean crumbs, you can end up falling away. But you can end up not falling away, but bearing 30-fold fruit. Well, why settle for 30, go for 60? Do you see the point? If we're unstoppable in the Lord, then Satan can't stop us. And, and we're certainly seeing that with Joshua. He just kept going because his eyes were on the Lord. Now, everything that we've seen tonight, all this, this glimpse of God preparing Joshua, everything we've seen tonight happened in the first year of their journeys in the wilderness. I mean, this was some year for Joshua, but this is only the first year. All this is within 12 months of them coming out of Egypt. They travel around for a year and get uh, to the edge of Canaan, and of course they don't go in. Now, the next that we hear of Joshua, okay, is still in Numbers, but it's chapter 27. Just, just fine. Chapter 27. This is the next we hear of Joshua. And this is now 40 years later. 
this is now at the end of the wilderness wanderings. Everything we've seen thus far tonight was the beginning of the wilderness wanderings, the first year of his training. Some year, eh? Well, here we discover, now, in chapter 27, we're now 39 years on. Now, I don't know whether every year was as heavy as that first one. Probably not. I mean, he probably would have had any strength left, crumbs. But the point is, we now go forward 39 years, all right? Moses, do you remember, he waited for 40 years to be prepared for what God had called him to do. What's Joshua just done? He's just waited 40 years. The same as Moses. Well, if you want to imitate people, who, you know, God uses, then you've got to go the way they went. And it's through the wilderness for 40 years. It's the only way. It's through hard dealings in your life. So, therefore, Joshua, he wanted to be like Moses. He wanted the walk with God that Moses had. So God said, Joshua, I'll give you the desire of your heart. You've got to go the same way as Moses. So here we come 40 years later, all right? Now then, one of the lessons that he learned in that 40 years was a lesson that he couldn't possibly have learned in the first year. And it was patience. I mean, you know, Lord, make me patient. And make me patient now. Doesn't work. Time. Joshua has been waiting for that future that he has been faithfully believing for. He's been waiting for 40 years. And for 40 years he's been waiting to lead God's people into Canaan. Has it happened? No. He has simply spent 40 years as Moses' assistant, aimlessly wandering around the wilderness with a couple of million people. who spent most of their time bickering and squabbling until they eventually all dropped dead. Then they had to teach all the children of the new generation. I mean, this, this was, was not, you know, I mean, sometimes I've heard it said that ministry should be glamorous. I've never known it to be glamorous. One thing we can be sure, it wasn't glamorous for him or not yet. 40 years. Now, this is the utterly vital test of time. If leadership hasn't passed the test of time, it's not leadership. The only way you can mature is the test of time. The only way you can learn patience is the test of time. The only way you can prove your calling is the test of time. You know, I mean, how can someone, how is someone supposed to believe that you know you 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 are a leader raised up by God? How are they supposed to know that after two weeks of knowing you? It takes a lot longer than that, doesn't it? And it's always the test of time in the Bible, one of the, you know, the, the, the sort of prerequisites for God working in people's lives. And, and that test of time, it teaches patience. It, it, certainly, it certainly teaches you to be faithful in the little things. Now, there's a good reason for that. There are only little things to be faithful in. I mean, yes, one awaits the grand ministry at the end of the line. And yes, indeed, very, there might be a grand ministry at the end of the line. The day of big things might yet be coming. Who knows? But the point is, until it gets here, you're in a day of little things. And that's the test of leadership. 
If you're not faithful in little things, who's going to trust you with big things? That's fundamentally what Jesus said. And so he's passed all these tests. He's been patient. At the end of the 40 years, he's still there, raring to go, even though all he's had to do is wait. But the vision that God gives is for the future, and it's not fulfilled in a day. He learnt that as well. But he learnt that it's not man's timing, it's God's timing. And so, however difficult all this preparation was for him, and probably the first year, very intense, very exciting, that was probably, although he took some blows that year, that was probably the best year, because at least it was exciting. But of the 39 years, the Bible really doesn't tell us very much about it. You get a little story here and there. Well, I mean, why is that? Well, because there really weren't nothing worth reporting. You see, he passed the test of time. He was there, head down, plodding along, following the Lord, learning that, 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 that the vision is, is not fulfilled in a day. The test of time has to be passed. But now, in Numbers 27, we come to the, towards the end of the line for him and the preparation, and we'll read from verse 15. And this is, this is where he is now appointed as the successor to Moses. Moses said to the Lord, this is Numbers 27 and verse 15, so this is 39 years later. Uh, 39 years later. Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them and bring them in so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Because that's what he learned to be, a, sh a shepherd to the people of God. So if anyone needed help, it didn't matter who they were and it didn't matter how little the problem might have appeared, he was there for them. That, that's what he learned. Um, so the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority so that the whole Israelite community will obey him. He is to stand before Eleazar the priest who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. This was the Urim and the Thummim, like the, the, the shield, they think it was, that, that God used sometimes to, to, to speak to the high priest. At his command, he and the entire community of the Israelites will go out, and at his command, they will come in. And that's why the preparation has to be so um, intense. That's why it has to be so thorough, because he was being given authority over other people. And that authority must never be abused. That's, Moses was the humblest man on the earth. The last thing you want are men who have authority over God's people, who are arrogant. You know, that's, no, it's got it, that's the preparation is so important. All the years of humbling and waiting and just sorting out the little things, that's what humbles you. It takes away any airs and graces you've got. And the point is, we've all got them, but the Lord has to take them out of us, and often it's the hard way. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole assembly. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord instructed through 
Moses. And, and so here, now, he takes over from Moses. He's appointed by Moses to be his successor. And he needed this, and all Israel needed this. And the reason that he needed this, he needed this to know that he wasn't being presumptuous in becoming God's leadership, you know, a leader over God's people. And that, that's a hurdle. It is presumptuous to lead if God has not called you to lead. But if God has called you to lead, it is not presumptuous to lead. If God has called you to do anything, it is not presumptuous that you do that. But it's, it's fair, I mean, if Satan can't get you to do things that you shouldn't do by drawing on your arrogance, if he can't do that, he'll come in the other door and he'll stop you doing things that you are meant to be doing by telling you that you're being arrogant for doing them. I mean, Satan will come at whatever angle he can. And it was important that Joshua knew that God had called him, that he had this confirmation. So here, Moses and the high priest and you know God himself demonstrate to the people that this is indeed the leader that he's raised up. And if we ask the question, about, you know, well, I mean, to that extent, how do you recognise a leader? How do you recognise someone who's got a ministry for the Lord? Well, the answer is, how we are able to recognise that is because you see that ministry, you see the life of that person who's in that calling, and over the period of time, they demonstrate to you that they are called. That it's not just presumption. That's that's the, we'll see a little bit more of that, um, next time and uh, you know so so here he needed to know that he wasn't just being presumptuous and it wasn't all just the uh, arrogance of his own heart Do you remember when um, young David before he became king uh, Goliath and uh, the whole Israelite army stands still no one daring to fight Goliath and uh, David comes on the scene and he finds his brother because he basically bought, bought their sandwiches hadn't he for lunch and, uh, and he says Who, who's this Philistine you know, sort of like, you know, who does he think he is? You know, holding up Israel. Our God is bigger than him. And uh, his brother says, I know the evil of your heart and your presumption. But it wasn't. That was genuine faith that David had. And it's very subtle when, you know, when, when Satan will try to, to prevent you doing what God wants by, by feeding you, you know, it's merely presumption. All right, that's, that's something that everyone has to watch and leaders ha have to be aware of that as well. And uh, so Joshua needed that demonstration. You'll remember um, years later um, when Elisha took over from Elijah, he said to the Lord, well, you know, sort of like when Elijah goes, give me a double portion of his spirit. And when Elijah was taken to heaven in the chariot of fire, Elisha saw that happen and uh, the mantle rested on him. And so Elisha had that demonstration from the Lord, so that Elisha knew that he wasn't merely being presumptuous. And, uh, you know, another classic example that Elisha copied his mentor, Elijah, and took over from him in much the same way that Joshua has copied his mentor, Moses, and then taken over <coughs> from him. And if you go over now to, to chapter 32, and let's, let's see... God's verdict on, on his piece of work here. Because God's the potter, Joshua's a bit of clay. Let's see what the potter thinks of this particular jug, or whatever you might like to think it is. And uh, chapter 32, and 5 verse 11. 
and um, it's talking about you know how the Lord's anger was raised against the people and he says because they have not followed me wholeheartedly not one of the men 20 years old or more who came up out of Egypt will see the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So here's another account when God is saying, look, you know, all, all those of you came out of Egypt, you're not going into the land. Because of your unbelief, because of your rebellion, you're not going in. He said, not one except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzites, and Joshua, son of Nun. For they followed the Lord with all their heart. Now, as, as God looks down on Joshua and sees, you know, thinks, well, how's, how's this pot coming on? He says, oh, very nice. This pot is following me with all its heart. And that's the, well, I, I, what can I say? That's what I want. That's, that's, wouldn't it be fantastic if the Lord said that of you, if the Lord said that of me? And, uh, but that's what all the preparation was for. Joshua was following the Lord with, with, with all his heart. And if you just go to Deuteronomy now, coming to, to the end, and it's going to see like Moses' closing words concerning Joshua. Deuteronomy and chapter 31, this is right near Moses' death. And uh, Deuteronomy 31, and um, read 1 to 3 first. Moses went out and spoke these words to all Israel. I am now 120 years old and am no longer able to lead you. 120 years, 40 years in Egypt, all right, in the world, 40 years having come out of the world, as it were, being prepared for his ministry, and then another 40 years fulfilling that ministry. So it was actually the last third of Moses' life that it really happened. See, God's not in a hurry. As I've often said, he's not growing a backyard full of mushrooms, he's growing a forest of oaks, and it takes a little bit longer. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you, as the Lord said. Now go to verse 7. Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their forefathers to give them and you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, is there, is there a time there, just shortly before Jesus went back to heaven? And when he went back to heaven, the Holy Spirit was poured out, and fundamentally, spiritual warfare began. And what did Jesus say? I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see? And here, that's what God says to them just as they're about to embark on taking the promised land. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see the parallel between this and us living our Christian lives. And he says, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. And then verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, the day of your death is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting where I will commission him. So Moses and Joshua came and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. And verse 23, Then the Lord gave this command to Joshua the son of Nun, Be strong and courageous, for you will bring the Israelites into the land I promised them on oath, and I myself will be with you. Now I just want you to notice something there. Forty years earlier, 
when Moses went out to the tent and God came into the tent and spoke to him. All right, and all Israel would look on and there was Joshua outside the tent as well. And when Moses came out of the tent, what did Joshua do? Straight in, maybe living in hope that one day the Lord will meet me in that tent like Moses. What's happening here? The Lord's met him in the tent just like he did with Moses. So keep going. That was the word to Joshua. Don't give up. He will give you the desires of your heart. And Joshua hung in there and he went through the preparation. How grueling it was. He went through it. He stayed faithful and he got the desires of his heart. And then in, in Deuteronomy 34, we get the death of Moses. Um, Moses dies. And then in verse 9, Now Joshua the son of Nun was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Now notice that. In order to embark on spiritual warfare, because what Joshua is being prepared for and what he's now going to start doing, he is going to lead Israel into Canaan, pushing out the Canaanites systematically as they go. It's a picture of spiritual warfare. Now in order to anoint him now, because here is the anointing of God on him for the ministry, he's anointed and filled with the spirit of wisdom. Now, bearing that in mind, go back to Ephesians and find chapter 3. We've already said that the book of Joshua is the Old Testament counterpart to Ephesians, or rather Ephesians is the New Testament counterpart to Joshua. Again, if we say that Ephesians is the script, Joshua is the movie, where we see the doctrine that we're given in Ephesians, we see it being acted out before our eyes in the history of Israel um, being led into the Promised Land. And look, in Ephesians 3, all right, and find verse, verse 10, and this is Paul talking about the plan that God has, and he says, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, who are the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms? It's the, the demons and Satan that he keeps talking about in Ephesians 6. He's talking about the demonic forces that run the world. And he's saying that God's plan is that through the church, those demonic forces through spiritual warfare, should see in the church God's divine wisdom. Now here's the point, shouldn't that be power? No, wisdom. God, if he wanted, could simply wipe out Satan and all the remaining demons. After all, a load of demons are in Tartarus. If God wanted to, he could chuck them all down into Tartarus. Indeed, um, you know, sort of like uh, eventually, in the thousand-year reign of Christ, he will do that very thing. God has the power to, to, to just lock Satan up. But he hasn't chosen to do that. He's chosen to outmaneuver him and to outwit him. It's a battle of the minds, you see. But here's the point. He's going to outwit him and outmaneuver him through human beings, through the church. And so we see that here, 
Joshua is anointed with the spirit, not of power, but the spirit of wisdom. And we're going to see how the Canaanites were outmaneuvered every step of the way. We're going to see, actually, occasions when the Canaanites outmaneuvered the Israelites, when Joshua didn't get it right, when Joshua didn't look to the Lord, when rather than him seeing victory over, as it were, Satan, when Satan tricked him and he had to pay the price for it. Yeah, this is all the sort of stuff that we're going to see. But for the time being, let's just draw the main lesson, all right? Christian leaders, and this, this should be true of all believers, but Christian leaders are unstoppable because they know what God is doing. They know what God is doing, therefore they can't be stopped. And the reason they can't be stopped isn't just that they know what God is doing, but it's because God has prepared them to be faithful and to be strong and to be immovable as they face all the obstacles in the way of them getting where they are going. But they're men with a vision from God. And that vision is going to be fulfilled. And the Christian warrior, and you don't have to be a leader in a church to be a Christian warrior, the Christian warrior has a vision from God. I'm not necessarily, you know, in the same way that someone might have a vision to evangelise China. I'm not necessarily talking in that dramatic a way. That may be true. But the point is, if only the vision of Jesus being revealed through us. And with that vision, the warrior is like a dog with a bone. And he or she will not let go of it until it's fulfilled. That's the single-mindedness that God got into Joshua. And that's the single-mindedness that you and I need if we are to be effective in spiritual warfare. That's the point. You can go into spiritual warfare and then before you know it, you've been immobilised and, you know, so, I mean, you know, maybe love of riches and the cares of the world has got you. You know, I, I mean, any number of things, you know, saying bring along a bit of persecution and you think, oh, well, that, that's it. I always remember an episode of The Goodies and this was absolutely marked because it was one of Tim Brook uh, Tim Brooke Taylor's great speeches of you know sort of like loyalty to the flag of England and uh, you know there was I can't remember you know what what the storyline was but there was a, a particular mission that they needed to go on all right and um, you know and Graham Garden is you know is there and and he's saying about that we go for the glory of England and you've got land of hope and glory played in the background yeah it's getting louder and louder and he's stomping around the room and you know and talking about you know for the glory of our Queen and he's doing one of his big speeches and the music gets louder and louder and louder and then Graham Garden says it'll be dangerous and he says oh no, I'm not going you know, and sometimes Christians can be like that. They say, Lord, use me. So the Lord starts to use them. They don't like it and they back out. No, we want to be effective in spiritual warfare uh, with that tenacity and that hanging on a dog like a bone, just like Joshua was. Right, well, we've certainly seen the background uh, to a man that God has prepared in order to use him. Next time, we actually look at the beginning of the conquest of Canaan.